This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to Yorkshire, where we are 24 miles or so north of Hull on the coast in the town of Bridlington, a holiday destination on a weather like this, you can see why, and a fishing port which brings in more shellfish than any other fleet in Europe. Our host is Bridlington Priory, founded as an Augustinian monastery over 900 years ago. Much of the original building was demolished when Henry VIII set about the destruction of the monasteries. The magnificent Gothic nave, however, survived. It's on the scale of a cathedral, but the original priory was some five times the size. Today, it's a parish church which boasts one of the finest organs in the land, a mecca, if the word's not inappropriate, for organists from all over the world. It's been rebuilt several times, most recently after the millennium, when it was dedicated by one of our panellists, John Sentineau, the Archbishop of York. In the country of his birth, Uganda, he was imprisoned as a young lawyer for speaking out against the tyranny of Idi Amin. Soon after his release, he fled to the United Kingdom in 1974. Five years later, he was ordained as a priest, rising to become the primate of England in 2005. He has never lost the will to speak out, as we may find out soon. Sir Mark Lyle Grant has had a distinguished diplomatic career, culminating in his appointment as our man at the United Nations, the UK's permanent representative from 2009 to 2015. Thereafter, until last year, he was the government's national security advisor. With them, two party politicians, Rishi Sunak, who gained a first at Oxford University before entering the world of business and finance. Elected to Parliament in 2015 in William Hague's plum seat, he is now Minister for Local Government. Annalise Dodds entered the Commons even more recently. In fact, she's been in the House for less than a year, though she'd been an MEP from 2014 until she was elected in Theresa May's snap election last summer. She's had swift promotion and is now Shadow Treasury Minister. Our panel... And our first question, please. Chris Price. Who is responsible for the injustices to the Windrush immigrants? There's been a lot of buck passing of one kind or another in the last few days. To whom or to what would you attribute it? Annelise Dodds. I have to say, and this will sound like a very party political point, but I do think that the blame for this, having looked into the evidence does lie with the current government, particularly with Theresa May. Of course, she was the person who had overall responsibility for the Home Office at the time. And I have to say that my view on that has been corroborated from a number of constituents who've got in contact with me and who said that they've really felt things started to get much more difficult, particularly in 2014 when we saw the uh, changes in the Immigration Act that removed those protections for Commonwealth citizens. So um, the most important thing for me now, though, is not about blaming anyone. It's about getting on and making sure that those Windrush generation people who might have been deported or who might have been denied accommodation, for example, uh, potentially um, losing their jobs, other things because of this hostile environment, that we find where they are, who they are, and we set things right. That's what's got to happen now. Okay, we can go into what happened before, but we've got to set things right now as quick as we can. Up to 50,000 individuals are thought to be affected, and that the 
moment, the latest count today, as a result of the calls to the helpline, some 286 cases are being investigated. Um, let me come to you, Sir Mark Lauer Grant. Well, I think it's a very distressing episode, really, for all the individuals concerned, and it's important that their cases are settled uh, as quickly as possible. And in terms of putting the blame, I think it is wrong for ministers to put all the blame on officials. Perhaps you'd expect me to say that as, a, as an official of, of 37 years uh, standing. But which which I, it is thought, to a degree at least, the Home Secretary Well, did, I thought yes. there was a slight hint of that uh, this week. I mean, I think it's a byproduct, uh, if you like, of a policy which was to reduce net migration to the tens of thousands. Now, that was a very challenging target, obviously. Officials were under a lot of pressure. Ministers were under pressure to deliver that. And I think in those cases, sometimes the cases of individuals gets forgotten and maybe shortcuts are taken. But I would say one thing, um, that it isn't unreasonable for the government to distinguish between people who are here illegally and those who are here legally. That is really important. You know, there are many illegal immigrants in this country, um, and there has been quite a lot of abuse of the immigration system and the asylum system, and I saw that when I was uh, ambassador in Pakistan, for instance. So it isn't wrong, I think, for the government to try and find those people who hire here illegally and remove them. But each case needs to be treated on its merits, and it needs to be dealt with sensitively on a personal basis and not have some across-the-board policy. Given the pressures that you outlined, what did you think or what do you now think of what Theresa May's Home Secretary said, that her aim was, I quote, to create a really hostile environment for illegal migrants? Well, I don't know whether she used those words exactly or not. Yeah, she but used those words no exactly, as a matter of fact. There's no doubt that there was pressure to meet a government target. And it wasn't just Theresa May's target. It was the government's target to reduce net immigration uh, to the tens of thousands. So that did create a climate of pressure on both ministers and officials, as I said. So I think that was probably uh, a problem and has led to some of the individual distressing cases. And what do you, as a, as a civil servant, and you look just briefly forward to the fact that there are uh, some millions of EU citizens who will, uh, over the next two years or three years, have to demonstrate by one means or another that they have the right to stay here. Do you have concerns that that is very difficult to achieve? No, I have much less concerns on that, um, and both David Cameron and then Theresa May have made very clear guarantees that uh, EU citizens will not be uh, deported. So I don't have any concerns on that score. Who's responsible, uh, Chris Price asks. Archbishop. Any matter to do with immigration is a responsibility of Her Majesty's government. So the government currently is responsible. Uh, it's a decision they've taken because they were saying that those who are living here illegally because of lack of official paperwork, I find that quite difficult. I want to say uh, that any community, society, government, or even church that forgets its memory becomes senile. Windrush people came here after the war because there was a shortage of labor, and they've been here a very long time, and before you decide to deport anybody, actually it's your responsibility to make sure that you're deporting the right people. 
And in this particular case, I think it's not right. I think it's not good. We've got another complication that in 2009, there was a decision uh, that landing cards and other important documents should be shredded by the Home Office. And by the way, that was a decision by the Labour Party in 2009. Uh, Theresa May comes to 10 now. So how are they going to establish that there are these papers which have already been shredded? So my view is very simple. You made a big mistake. You've apologized. Quickly sort it and get on with it so that people can get on with their lives. Minister, is it a matter of, should be a matter of shame for government that this came to pass? Well, this, this whole topic of this Windrush immigration is, is quite personal to me and very important to me. My parents emigrated to the UK as teenagers in the late 60s as part of that second great wave of Commonwealth immigration from East Africa. And, you know, they arrived here, they tried very hard to integrate, uh, and then they, they worked very hard to provide a life in, here in Britain. My mum became a pharmacist and worked you know, day and night to make sure that her kids had a great upbringing in Britain. And you know, her son now sits as a member of parliament. So the idea that you know, 30 or 40 years later someone would tell my parents that they shouldn't be here and they're not British is quite frankly appalling. Um, that, you know, and that's why it's right that both the Home Secretary and the Prime Minister have acknowledged that mistakes were made and they've apologised for that. And I think it's absolutely the right that the government says, we've got this wrong and we're sorry. What, what's, what, was, what, were, what were they precisely apologising for? What was the mistake that was made? They, they needed to clarify who had a right to yeah. live here or who didn't. What was the mistake that was the, made? The mistake that was made was originally when this act was passed in 1971, ensuring that anyone who had arrived uh, up until that point or until 1973 was going to be granted the right to settle here permanently. Uh, there wasn't then any follow-up by any subsequent government over the, uh, the following decades to ensure that those people had the paperwork necessary and to get that process done. It was just assumed it would happen. And then obviously in the in the environment we are now, some of this has been caught up uh, dealing with what um, Smart talked about, was tackling a different problem, which is illegal immigration, which is absolutely right why the Home Secretary has put in place uh, a response, and she came to the House and I thought very sincerely apologised and is very committed to fixing this as soon as possible. Do, do and you now think there's, that a, the problem... there's a process in place, important for anyone to know. I mean, there is now a, a, a clear, there's a hotline, there's a website, there's community outreach. Anyone who thinks they're effective can call. They'll be helped at no cost to themselves and the process will take, I think, no more than two weeks now. So I think that's absolutely right that people have confidence that, you know, the contribution they've made to this country will be recognised, be valued, and at this point forward they should have you, no problems at all. You talked, about the, you talked about the distress that you would have had if your parents had come into this uh, net. Um, do you think that the problem was made worse, the urge to bring the figures down, the urge to create, quotes, a really hostile environment, that van, go home or face arrest, created the atmosphere in which the kinds of human suffering that we've read about and heard on the radio and television over the last few days happened? 
Well, I think it's first that, that phrase hostile environment was first used by a Labour Home Secretary, I think, Alan Johnson in, in the 90s. John Reid, another Labour Home Secretary, talked about making life uncomfortable for illegal immigrants. You know, Yvette Cooper do you think that's it? Do you think whoever no, used think, it, is it inappropriate I, I think, language? I think it is it's absolutely right that we distinguish between people from the Windrush generation and people like my parents who have been here for a long time, who have contributed, who have settled here, who are clearly British, and those who are here illegally. Now, you know, we have a system where people are working hard, paying taxes, and it's right that we ensure that only those who have a legal right to be here can benefit from public services. I think that's fair to the people providing those services. I think that's fair to the people from the Windrush generation and, as well and who Dodds. have contributed so much to our society. And Lise Dodds? Yeah, just, just very briefly, I'm not sure it's totally right to say that no government since did anything to try and make sure that long-standing Commonwealth residents would have a secure situation here. As I understand, there was legislation in 1999 that protected their status, but the clause that protected their status was then removed in the 2014 Immigration Act. And I would just say in response to the point about the EU that actually I'm dealing with a lot of cases now where people are basically coming up with a situation where the computer says no. You know, they've been in the UK, they're trying to prove that. It's very, very difficult. They're very nervous. They're very frightened about their status and that of their children. We need to learn from this. Well, I think on the the point about EU nationals, I think it is important. I think it's a fair question to ask. We obviously have millions of people here who want to know that they're going to be able to stay here. And the Prime Minister has committed incredibly clearly that they absolutely will be able to stay here and remain here. And that agreement was reached at the end of last year. The system that is being put in place to ensure that that happens is going to be one that I think uh, will work very well. It's going to be up and running in the second half of this year. It's going to take less than two minutes for them to complete. It's just half a dozen questions. It will be cheaper than the cost of getting a passport. And the government is going to do all the work connecting the dots uh, to make sure that they can prove their residency here in a way that didn't happen with the Windrush generation. So we have learned from that. And the new system, I think, will be quick, efficient and cheap and will give the people John that Sent- need it confidence. John Sentinel. I just want to remind how much is the government that in 2015 we celebrated the Magna Carta and I just want to give the two paragraphs that actually should tell the government this has not been a good decision. It says no free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. To no one will we sell to no one deny Delay a right or justice. Please live by the Magna Carta. You will very probably have thoughts about what you've just heard. If so, on this and any of the other issues we come to discuss, any answers may be for you. The number to ring after the Saturday broadcast of this program is 03700 100 444. The lines open at 12.30. They are always busy. You can email any.answers at bbc.co.uk as well, and you can tweet using the hashtag BBCAQ. Or follow us at BBC. Any questions, say what you think about what you're hearing now as well as what you would like any answers to discuss. Um, we'll go to our next, please. Marion Lambert. Does the Commonwealth still have a purpose and a mission? We know the Prince of Wales is going to succeed the Queen. Uh, the Commonwealth, after its foundation, was... Uh, to preserve, protect, enhance democracy and human rights. 53 nations, a third of the membership of the UN. Does it still have a purpose and a mission? Um, Archbishop Centineu. I'm a child of the Commonwealth. I can go nowhere else. 
Uh, it serves the 53 countries in terms of friendship. And I was very sad when we joined the EU. Actually, Commonwealth trade did not continue in the same way. So I hope that this Brexit, when it happens, will be able to trade. And later on, maybe talk about why I also favour remaining in customs union of the of Europe. It's just so, possible we'll come to the so Commonwealth the com- in that context. The Commonwealth is absolutely vital and important. First of all, common language, common history, common tradition, and trying to say to everybody, yes, this was born out of colonialism, but we become of age, and we'd like to continue to be friends with one another. What a better way in our world, which is actually fighting one another. So you can bring together 53 nations. Huge populations to say to one another, you're my friend, I'm your friend, because of our common history, because of the language we actually all use, the trade we used to have, please don't stop it. I think it is amazing. And to those who say, Archbishop, it's just a talking shop, um, and some of its members don't live up to the standards expected of democracy or indeed of human rights, what do you say to that? I will say to them that particularly the Church of England with the Anglican Communion is in all of those countries. And when there have been troubles, for example, in Rwanda, the relationship between the churches and the nations of the Commonwealth actually get together. Development in matters of environment and many other things. So I'll say, if it ain't broke, why fix it? It's a fantastic organization. And I want to say that it really serves to tell the world, yes, you can be ruled by people in the past, but a time comes and the queen has been amazing in this evolving out of colonialism into some kind of independence where we are all equals. When the photographs are taken, the heads of governments are all equal. Wouldn't you want the rest of the world to be just like that? I would. Sir Mark Lyle Grant, when the Queen first went to the United States, she spoke at the UN in her role as head of the Commonwealth. You served at the UN. You see what that organization is, has been, maybe. What purpose or mission do you think the Commonwealth has, if it has one? Well, I think it certainly has a, a, a mission, and I agree with the Archbishop on this. I'm a big fan of the Commonwealth. I've spent 10 years of my working life living and working in Commonwealth countries overseas, and have seen the real affection that the Commonwealth countries have for Her Majesty the Queen, and the benefits they see in Commonwealth membership, and frankly, the benefits that the United Kingdom gets from being the head of the Commonwealth. And I don't think we should be shy about having a leadership role in the Commonwealth. The French are not shy about being in the lead on the Francophonie. So I don't think we should be too humble about our role. It is the United Kingdom that is at the centre of the web of this diverse community that makes up the Commonwealth. And the issues that were being discussed uh, this week, I think, although extremely important issues, and I don't want to minimise them in terms of cyber security and climates and oceans and values, but I do think that the government could potentially do more, and this was something I argued for from my seat at the United Nations, that if we really want to make the Commonwealth a valuable institution going forward, we do need to tackle the things that Commonwealth members care about most, and that includes things like trade preferences, visa preferences, aid preferences. 
I, th I think myself, we have a very big overseas aid program, but only 10 of the top 20 bilateral recipients of aid are actually Commonwealth countries, and I think we maybe ought to skew our aid program a little bit more in favor of Commonwealth countries. Rishi Sunak. Your, your parents came from a Commonwealth the, country to the, a Commonwealth country, namely this one. Uh, and my wife is a citizen of another Commonwealth country, and I've spent most of my career before politics, you know, working in business, you know, living and working internationally. So, you know, for me, of course, there's lots of history there with the Commonwealth, but for me, the exciting thing is the future. And if you, if you look at the Commonwealth, it contains countries like Nigeria, you know, which is the largest country in Africa, but it's going to be one of the largest countries in the world um, with a very young population, fast-growing economies like Malaysia, and it contains half of the world's fastest-growing cities are all Commonwealth cities. So as I think about uh, our post-Brexit future, and I think about young people growing up in the UK, having opportunities to travel to Commonwealth countries, to study in them, for citizens of those countries to come and study here, and for our businesses and their businesses to trade with each other, I think that looks like a fantastic opportunity. And I think the Commonwealth can be a key part of our economic future after Brexit. And I'm delighted that it is strong and vibrant and that we are a part of it today. I... I I only intervened at that point because I thought you were going to go down the road of economic future, and you don't know what the questions are coming up. I'm in that privileged position, <laughs> um, and I didn't want you to go there yet. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Annalise Dodd. No problem. Um, I think it's very, very important that we continue to have a strong relationship with the Commonwealth. It's got to be a mature relationship and a respectful relationship. And I think if any of the other Commonwealth countries at any point think we're trying to kind of instrumentalise that relationship and suddenly get all friendly with them when we think that there might be a kind of trade gold, gold mine down the road, then we're going to lose the kind of respect that we have. I won't talk too much about this because our chair has just suggested we're going to move on to that area. But I think we really have had those links for a long time with those other countries. We do need to cement them, but every time we need to be clear that this is a partnership of equals, otherwise we will lose that goodwill, I think, that we already have through the Commonwealth. There's, there's, a, there's a, a tweet here. The Commonwealth is a useless talking shop, duplicating what the UN does. Many members are less than democratic, not much in common, and adds... And not everyone will find attractive thought, but it kept the Queen busy. Any thought on that from our panel? Well, it, no. No, well you know, I think actually one of the, the great things the Commonwealth does is help um, foster democratic institutions and democracy amongst its members. And we talked before about rights and spreading you know, good human rights. I, you know, one of the powers that the Commonwealth has is to suspend members. And there's been you know, history in the past, about half a dozen members that have been suspended have then been readmitted after moving either from a, a you know, situation with poor human rights when they've moved to you know, free and fair elections. So it acts as a powerful incentive in that way. I think Fiji was the most recent uh, nation that went through that process. So I think that actually is very helpful and is real and it's happening and it's making a difference to many people across the world that the Commonwealth is a, acts as a beacon for them to want to join and be part of it and improve their democracy at home. So we should celebrate that. Annalise. Just very briefly, I think that we need to have more discussion between countries, particularly at this stage of time, rather than less. So if it is a talking shop in some respects, there's nothing wrong with talk if it means that we move closer to each other and we build that understanding.
I always rather go for Jojo than war war. They may talk, but it's better to talk than not to talk at all. And the things that have happened, take for example an issue which to me is quite important. Um, you know, of the 53 countries which all inherited, for example, English law and bit of it which criminalizes homosexual people, 37 countries still have that law. They are still in the Commonwealth. It is possible they can be persuaded that there's no need to criminalize homosexual people. And I think by doing it in the Commonwealth is more, more likely to have an effect than being left on their own. Zimbabwe was behaving very badly. Commonwealth said, no, until you reform, you're not going to be a member of the family. They're now saying can, they can come back. I think that's not bad. Okay, thank you. Linda Johnson. Linda Johnson. Is the Commonwealth Britain's new EU? You see, I did know that that's where they were going to go. Um, Mark Lauer Grant. No. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think that the Commonwealth can be a substitute for, for the European Union. I mean, they are very different organisations, serve very different purposes, have a different legal background and personality, etc. So I think... Uh, we had, if you like, the benefit of both worlds. We were members of the European Union, which was our key trading partners, and we were a member of the Commonwealth, where we shared the values and, and language and other uh, things in common around the common law, etc. Uh, now we're leaving the European Union. That's not something I personally was in favour of, but I think now that the decision's been taken, it's important that we crack on with it. But we should do so in a way that benefits our economy as best we can. Um, it's really important, therefore, in my view, that economic issues are absolutely paramount in the Brexit negotiations, so that when we, whatever deal is struck at the end, we are not going to be damaging our children's future. My own children were, personally, they were horrified by the referendum outcome because they saw themselves as citizens of Europe and and were quite shocked that, uh, as they felt it, an older generation was taking a decision which would affect their lives rather more than the older generation. And I can understand that. And I understand that concern, frankly. Um, so I do think now the government and everyone involved in Parliament, etc., owes it to the younger generation to make this happen in a way which... Uh, reduces uh, the, the potential economic cost to this country. Now, of course, there will be opportunities in global Britain. Uh, there will be many opportunities, and the Commonwealth can play a part in that. But I think if we make a, a simplistic uh, balance, say it's a choice between the EU and the Commonwealth, I think we're just going to go down a rabbit hole. At the moment, Commonwealth trade is roughly 9% of UK exports trade with the EU. At the moment, is some 43%. Minister... Yes, that, that is right. It, uh, today is a, a lot less, uh, the exports of the Commonwealth, but it is growing three or four times as fast as our trade with the EU. And I don't think it has to be an either-or relationship. Uh, we're, you know, we're leaving the European Union. I think, I guess we're talking about younger generation. I might be the youngest person on this panel and how, the only how, one who how, supported how, Brexit. Uh, but in any case... How, we, you know, how, so, how old are you? Uh, 37. Well, you're quite grown up, aren't you? <laughs> I don't, should I take that as a compliment or not? I'm not sure. But um, in any, no, in any case, so 
it's not an either-or. Like, we should, of course, you know, negotiate a sensible trading relationship with the European Union. I think that's in their interest, it's in our interest, and I'm confident that that will get done. But once we leave the European Union, we do have the opportunity to engage with our other partners around the world, including countries, not just the emerging markets that I talked about before, but countries like Canada, like Australia, New Zealand, America, etc. And that's an exciting opportunity. Our trade with those places is growing fast. They're all showing an enormous willingness uh, to sign trade agreements with us. And we can attach our economy to the fast-growing places around the world. can only be a good thing for the UK uh, whilst maintaining good relationships with the European Union. So, you know, as I look forward to post-Brexit Britain, I'm incredibly excited we have the opportunity to engage with these people and, and deliver for the young people, which I think will benefit uh, from uh, all these new trading relationships. Uh, at the moment, as the former chairman of your party pointed out in the House of Lords when he was leading an amendment which triumphed in the House of Lords in favour of a customs union, um, he, he said 44 of the Commonwealth countries, um, of the non-EU Commonwealth countries, out of the total, already have trade deals. We already have trade deals with them, which suggests that there's precious little room for getting more trade with the Commonwealth than is currently available to us. I mean, you can measure it by number, because the EU does actually have a lot of trade agreements. It has something like 60 or 70 trade agreements, uh, which sounds like a lot, but when you go through it, lots of them are with really tiny little places like the Seychelles Islands. So what we don't have are big free trade agreements with large emerging markets like Nigeria, like South Africa, uh, and places like that, like India. So that's the opportunity that we can avail ourselves of after we leave the European Union. We, we shouldn't be scared about it. We should be excited about it. And quite frankly, I think people just want us to get on there and make the best of it. Thank you. And... <laughs> and Liz Dobbs, Shadow Treasury Minister, I should say. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Um, well, I think, of course, it's very important that we seek out trading opportunities wherever they might arise in the world. That goes without saying. But, of course, we have to be very sanguine about what they might deliver. And I think we've already had quite an interesting discussion around this. No one would doubt that many of the Commonwealth countries' economies are growing. That's a wonderful thing for them and potentially for all those countries that trade with them. But we have to be realistic about this. I mean, if we look at the GDP of the six biggest Commonwealth countries outside of the UK. Put together, it's actually less than just the GDP of France and Germany. So we are really talking a difference of scale here in many cases. Now, I'm not saying that's not going to change. It may well change in the future. And as Rishi said, those economies are growing quickly. But we've got to be sanguine about this. And I'd just say two more things in relation to that. First of all, of course, a lot of those Commonwealth countries are very keen to preserve their good relationships with the rest of the EU. So if they think we're about to threaten that by having some kind of uh, go-it-alone approach with them, they're not going to be very happy about it. And we've already seen a number of comments in that regard coming from Commonwealth countries. But secondly... Are you saying, sorry, you're not, be... are you saying that they will, they will cut back their trade? Rather, that Obviously, they may not be putting out the bunting, but you're not going to say, they're not saying they're going to cut back their trade with the UK no. as a means of, sort of punishing the UK. Oh, no, 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 not at all. But I think they're not going to be leaping over themselves to conclude a deal with the UK if they think that's going to cause economic problems with the rest of the EU, for example, and um, in some way affect their relationship with the EU. And we've seen a number of ministers from those countries being quite clear on that. Um, and secondly, I think we've got to be clear about what many of those countries are actually going to be asking 
um, of uh, when it comes to our own economy. If you look at, say, Australia and New Zealand, big priority for them is agricultural liberalisation. Um, now, of course, it may be a positive thing to see some change in the agricultural markets. Yes, um, no one would say that that has been perfect. But if we see, for example, a lot of New Zealand lambs suddenly coming in at a much lower price into the UK, that's going to have an impact on our hill farmers in particular who are already on very, very narrow margins. So we need to have our eyes open, I think, on all of this and not pretend there's some kind of halcyon future out there. Archbishop Centenary. When we arrived here uh, seeking asylum in 74, there was a wonderful thing because I came from the Commonwealth. I could vote in the election, in the referendum in 1975. And I, was, I looked at the figures and all I could see is that the United Kingdom was trying to join the European Economic Community. I thought it was a good thing, so I voted that they should go in. So that's why as I can tell you I'm still a Remainer. Um, I don't see a conflict, and somebody has got to try and work this one out. Why we can't trade freely with the uh, Commonwealth, but also work out where, whether the customs union is still a possibility. Because to simply turn your back on where most of your goods are going in a hope that there'll be a better future somewhere which you can't quite guarantee doesn't seem to fill me with great hope. So I hope Maybe I'm one of those people who says, I've got two hands, so I won't have both. The, in terms of economy, in relationship with the European Union, in terms of the Commonwealth, and I think it's not beyond the imagination of all, a lot of people. We are not leaving Europe. We are simply leaving the Union. And if you think that the best way to actually cement our still being in Europe but not in the Union, to me, I can't see why we can't have the customs union and at the same time be trading with other people. I just, I just can't see that because we've left this mantra of free movement of people, free movement of goods, and free movement of services. It's still quite possible to sort it out. So I'll have both, not just the Commonwealth and actually ignore your greatest trading partner. Are you passionate, Rishi Sunak, about leaving the customs union? Yeah, I, I am. And just quickly before we talk about that, on the hill farmers point, because I have the privilege in North, my North Yorkshire constituency of representing lots of hill farmers in the Yorkshire Dales. And, you know, of course it's right that we've got to get our future agricultural relationships um, on a level playing field, wherever whoever we trade with. But, you know, this is part of the scaremonger we hear about, you know, New Zealand lamb. New, New Zealand can already export lamb to the UK free of tariffs and they don't utilise their existing quota that they have with the European Union to send that lamb to the UK. And increasingly, British stores are stocking British lamb. So I think that, you know, of course we should be you know, concerned about hill farmers, but we need to make sure that we understand as well that you know, we don't need to be worried about some of the things we hear about. Now, with just, just, before you, just before you go on to that, just pick, you want to pick up on that, Annalise? Yes, I, I don't think I have been scaremongering, actually. When you talk to the farming community, I'm sure you just said you've done it locally, but I've done it in a, in a variety of different areas, and you have people talking about things like rewilding of the British countryside because they're concerned about that combination of potentially trade changes, not just from New Zealand, maybe from other countries too, but also changes to farm support, where we still don't have that clarity from government, apart from in the short term. And lots of people are very worried about this. I don't think it's right just to kind of dismiss it and say it's just scaremongering. This is what a lot of people are saying. Is it not, is it, um, you'll correct me because you, you, you have hill farmers, is it not true that a large 
portion, for instance, of Welsh lamb actually goes to Europe, and that market is the one that those farmers feel anxious about. Yes, absolutely right. About 34% of all British lamb goes to the European Union, primarily France, which is why it's important that we have a sensible trading relationship with Europe after we leave. Now, that's perfectly possible to have without remaining in the customs union, which was the original point, and to the Archbishop's point. If you look at countries all around the world that are very close trading partners, so take the US and Canada, take Norway and the EU, take Australia and New Zealand, now all of those pairs trade far more with each other than we actually trade with the EU. Not a single one of them has formed a customs union. Right? And forming a customs union means that you don't have the ability to run your own trade policy, to sign trade agreements with anyone else that you would like. So, of course, we should have a sensible future trading relationship with the European Union, which we will do through a free trade agreement as they sign with countries like Canada and elsewhere. But after leaving the customs union, we can also then embrace all the opportunities out there. And I really do think that that is the right place for Britain to be. I think that's what people voted for, and that's what we should deliver. Given... I don't want to go on for everyone, but given the, 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 the question of the customs union being in the minds of clearly European officials and many in your own party as well, that if the Northern Ireland uh, border issue is to be resolved, Britain has to remain in a customs union and the options that have been put forward by the government so far appear to have been comprehensively rubbished. Do you, if if push comes to shove, do you say yourself, no customs union, regardless of what happens to the border? Well, I think I'm I'm confident that we can resolve the issues around the Irish border whilst also leaving the customs union. The government's put two different proposals to the European Union to discuss, both of which would achieve the objectives that both they and we are seeking. Uh, The reports that we've read about today, the government's been very clear, do not reflect the conversations that it's had with its European partners. So those negotiations are still ongoing. And as I said, if you look around the world, where there are lots of other countries that share land borders, that trade a lot with each other, they all manage to do it in an efficient, quick way without having to resort to forming a customs union. Quick word on on that, Annalise Starts. Just one very quick question. The US and Canada have about 10 times as many customs officials as the UK has. So how on earth are we going to be ready for that kind of a different relationship on time according to your plans? I'm going to leave that there because we could discuss it at great length as we frequently do, but we're going to go on to our next, please. Uh, Marjorie Moore. Congregations in rural churches are at an all-time low. How do we arrest this decline? The, the, the worshipping communities, it's called, is in the Church of England, is just over a, a million, um, of whom 20% are young and uh, 30% plus are over the age of 70. And I suppose there's a question that does it matter if it's in decline? You are n- not a Church of England, you're a Hindu, as it happens, if I'm correct, Minister. What's your view? <laughs> They're at an all-time low. Well, I, Does I it matter? Mo- well, well I, think it, I think it does probably matter, actually, because I think, in general, religion is a, is a good thing. But, you know, as an answer to your question, how do we arrest it? I, have, I, you know, I represent a North Yorkshire rural community. At the bottom of my uh, garden, in this little place I live called Kirby Sixton, we have a tiny church, uh, which, uh, you know, on a typical Sunday has a congregation of anywhere between about 10 and 20. Uh, but when we get a very special distinguished visitor, uh, our archbishop, the congregation tends to increase substantially. 
So my simple plan for improving rural church attendance would for the Archbishop to do many more of his walking tours uh, and, and, and include us on his itinerary. John, you've got to keep walking, man. Are you going to do that? Well, I walked six months, um, went around every place. I'm going, I've gone, I'm going back Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and visiting different deaneries. I was in Marlborough Deanery recently, and I'm beginning to see uh, signs of hope. Um, I would say that in some rural areas, let's say they're about um, population of 100, if you get 10 people, that actually is very high, you know. So do not despise the little congregations. They're really quite high in terms of proportion. You could be in a city with 40,000 and you get 100 people. So how do we reverse this trend? I'm absolutely committed for myself that I've got to pray, I've got to work hard, I've got to walk, I've got to be out where people are, and I'm slowly beginning to sense God is sending the same spirit of Pentecost that led to the beginning of the church. And when that happens, wow. I'm sorry you're sitting down and not up at the lectern to deliver it from on high, what you just said. The spirit of Pentecost. Um, do you foresee, does it, let me ask you, I don't know whether you have faith or not faith, Annelise, but do you, do you, does it worry you if there is a decline, as there has been a steady decline, and Pentecost hasn't yet arrived, um, um, uh, does it matter? Um, I, I have to say this will sound like a very non-spiritual response because personally I'm, I'm not a believer, but I do think it matters because I think that collective institutions, when people come together, whether that's because of faith or because of their workplace concerns or because of concerns about the community or whatever, those places are declining. People are being less involved in those kinds of collective institutions. And I think that has a lot of negative impacts. I mean, one thing that I know that many people in, in Parliament, actually of all parties, are very concerned about is the extent of loneliness in our communities, you know, particularly rural communities, but lots of urban ones as well, and especially amongst older people. So I think it is important. Um, but in terms of the, the kind of more spiritual side, I certainly wouldn't attempt to suggest what the church should be doing. I think they wouldn't be very happy for an atheist to lecture them on that. But uh, I think... He calls himself Melonhead. Um, if churches aren't attracting people, then they should close, like pubs and post offices do, and the latter two are far more important. Um, Sir Mark Lyle Grant. Well, I'm probably like uh, many listeners uh, this evening. I'm Church of England, but only really worship formally in, in church at Easter and, and, and Christmas. Um, but I do think that living by Christian values is more important than formally worshipping in a fixed church. And when I say Christian values, I don't exclude other religions too, because actually all religions tend to have extremely good values. I'm much more concerned and was concerned in my role as National Security Advisor about the uh, attempts by some religions or some people in some religions to distort that religion to promote and encourage division and uh, exclusion. And that, I think, is extremely damaging. Um, so I, I certainly wouldn't... Um, uh, even try to suggest ideas to, to the Archbishop about filling churches, I think, as I say, living Christian values is more important than formal worship. Thank you. One more. 
Brief, brief reminder that Anita Anand will be waiting for your call all 03 700 100 444 after the Saturday broadcast this programme. And now, to our last question. Betty Cousins, have the members of the panel a favourite piece of music, for example, a song or a hymn? If so, would they be prepared to sing the first couple of lines? You've only got time for the first couple of lines at best. Um, I think you really would love to start on this. Sir Mark Lyle Grant. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I would rather, I would like some help from from listeners actually, because when I got married, I wanted to have a a hymn, um, because I remembered it from my school days when we were uh, uh, sang hymns, and it had two lines in it that particularly appealed to me, which was, uh, now is the time the brave man chooses whilst the coward stands aside. And I tried to hunt down this hymn um, for our wedding 35 years ago and was unable to find it. So that has always been one of my favorite hymns. And so if anyone has any ideas of where it comes from. How does the tune go, do you know? uh, Well, that particular line goes, now it is the brave man chooses while the coward stands aside. I wasn't allowed to sing at school. Very good. (laughs) Someone will come into any answers to help you solve your problem. Briefly, I'm afraid, which may come as some comfort to you. I don't know. Rishi Sunak. Uh, Well, as a Southampton fan, I'll be at Wembley this weekend with my uh, two young girls. And so on a keeping on a religious theme, the Southampton Football Club song was one that will be known to all churchgoers. You can help me go through it. Oh, when the saints go marching in, oh, when the saints go marching in. And at that point, we've got to march on, unhappily. Um, and Annalise Dodds. Well, I would probably choose I Did It My Way because that song was a favourite of a very dear friend of mine and it really summed her up. Uh, because we're running out of time, I think I can only sing very briefly, which is just as well because it sounds awful when I sing. So I hope everyone will join me, please, for the last line. I did it my way. If he is looking down... <laughs> if he is looking down... As it were, heaven knows what he was thinking at that. Um, Archbishop. We are in the Easter season, so the, my hymn would be Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. And those who know it, join me, please. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah. Hymns of That's a perfect fade out. (laughs) Highly professional, Archbishop. Thank you. Thank you to all of our panel. Thank you to our audience here for asking the questions and joining in. All we've got time for for this week. Next week, we're going to be in Seven Oaks. I hope you can join us there. From here in Bliddington Priory, a big thank you to the Rotary Club who invited us here. Thank you for our huge audience for coming and have safe journeys home. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed any questions this week. 
To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for any questions.